What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Benos podcast. And today's guest is none other than Andrew Bogut. And I'm not wearing this jumper for no reason. Um, it's the Boomer's jumper that I received from one of the assistant coaches during one of our battles. We talked a lot about those battles uh, that we had, whether it was World Cup or uh, the Rio Olympics that are most memorable to me personally, um, as well as his career as a player, um, the mentorship he received from coaches and other people around the values he got implemented by his parents, uh, the examples that his parents set for him in terms of work ethic, and a lot of things that people don't see that matter, that are between the lines and behind the scenes. So please enjoy this episode. Also, listen all the way to the end because he told also some really great Rick Majerus stories. For those who don't know, uh, you'll get to know a little bit of Rick Majerus' uh, side and, and, and history. Um, please subscribe to this channel. Not only to this YouTube channel, but also to all the on all the podcast platforms that exist. Enjoy this episode. Enjoy all the other episodes uh, up until now that I had, and um, some great guests, some great insights from Andrew uh, Bogues. I appreciate it, and uh, everyone else, please enjoy Andrew Bogut. Bogues, thanks for joining me. No worries. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're we're uh, we're not acquaintances, but we did uh, we ha do have a common acquaintance, and we cannot start this podcast without giving him a shout out. Uh, so, James Duncan, our Canadian friend, <laughs> thanks for doing the introduction. <laughs> JD, yeah, yep, current current head coach of uh, Brisbane. So, yep, be a big season coming up for him. Um, thanks for really thanks for doing this. Uh, before before we start into it, we also have another common connection which I want to start off with. And I didn't want to start off with the curveball, but let's see how good your memory works if if you go back a bit. Um, so it's under 20s, and uh, it was nationals in Brisbane, um, and uh, you were already at the AIS, and you played with the guard. Uh, his name was Lee Jekka. Do you remember yes. him? Yeah, I do. Yep. Yep. So we, uh, we we had a little chat about you. He's uh, like, you know, Lithos and Aussies have a long history. And yep. uh, my first introduction to the Australian culture was Lee. Uh, because when I came back from college, uh, I came play, to play for uh, for my father in, uh, back in Germany. And he was already playing for him. And we were the same age. So we like, we we're like brothers until now. He's like, he's like my brother from another mother. <laughs> so yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember him. Yeah, he was, uh, I was bottom age. So I was kind of a little bit different um the under 20s i still wasn't as good as I, i was that next year but yeah i definitely remember um remember lee for sure yeah he he said he said that uh ask him off air if he remembers me i said no no i'm doing on air <laughs> <laughs> no, i remember him yeah i remember all my teammates uh, for the most part especially state team um and we called him uh we said that he had the appropriate name because he shot it a lot so jacker you know uh, it worked out well <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, he did. That's that's a good one because he was jacking it up a lot he, when we were playing. And he had the perfect um, name. Now it's it's I I listened I listened to a lot of your um, my journey episodes and for everybody listening, uh, Rogue Bogues is your podcast. I I really encourage everybody to to get to and listen get to know you a little bit better your history because while I was listening to it, um, a lot of it honestly reminded me of like there was a lot of. Um, like memories that came up through Lee because Lee shout out also to Hopper's Crossing where he's from because I lived there for a month with him. So yeah, yeah. It, it, he he um, 
there were some similarities in terms of coming up, but you you really um, there were some tough upbringings from what I understood from your from your uh, early years. Um, and there was a lot of sliding door moments um, in your life, it felt like. So uh, where where do you feel like was one of the sliding door moments where like besides, I mean, building bombs, uh, <laughs> uh, getting into some fights, there was a lot of lot of fun stories or like scary stories, honestly. But where do you feel like your life could have turned turned for the worse? Oh, man, it was all, all throughout my childhood. Um, there were different different problems with every kind of year I went up. So primary school had its own problems with fights and trying to fit in. And um, I think the transition to high school was probably really hard for me. Um, I was, you know, a, a big dude but really skinny and stood out, you know, in seventh grade or year seven. Um, you know, everyone above me thought I was older, so I was copying, you know, copying shit from people. So um, even the... The bus route that I took, which I spoke about on the, my journey, was you know through some some a, a rough area, you know, where there was people high on drugs and um, you know thieves getting on and people that wanted to just take you know mess with you and you kind of had to figure out um, just just the daily happenings and be street smart and if you didn't, you get in trouble, right? So I felt like every every year I went up throughout high school was a different challenge and um, from the basketball side of things, I guess. That was a similar story, really. I, I bounced around a lot, um, changed clubs three or four times and was told I'd never be anything, I've got a bad attitude and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I kind of knew that I love the game more than anybody else um, and I was always always in the gym or in my backyard shooting. So I knew that eventually um, it just has to kind of work out. I didn't expect to be an NBA player. I would, I would have been just happy to play in the NBL in Australia. But, yeah, it all, it all just kind of came together quickly. Was that like kind of that with those situations that you talked about and like those fights or like people were trying you or even I would say even bullying you because you were taller than everybody else. There was some of that going on as well. Also, with your creation background, you said there was also some of some of some of a, a different perspective towards you. But did that toughen you up in, in terms of your career and help you throughout to to like overlook over some some uh, challenges that you had to face later on? Yeah, I think so. I think it did. Uh, at the time, it, it didn't seem that easy, but it just made you kind of um, – it just felt like it was me against the world, really, and that's a cliche that a lot of American players use and players use in general, but it really felt that way. Um, like there was no one in my corner besides my family, really. So, yeah, it was hard, but it was kind of – you couldn't – in the moment, it was hard and you dwelled on it a little bit, but you had to then move on, and it just taught you that – um, going through all those obstacles to still still make it to where I did just came down to you know the, the time that I put in and there was nothing really else other than that. A lot of people say, well, you're seven foot. Well, I know a lot of people, as probably you do as well, that are you know, seven foot or 6'10 or 6'11. I know a guy at 7'4 that didn't have a, a professional career, didn't make it in basketball because they didn't put the time in, right? Um, that's what, you know, uh, talent gets you so far in juniors. Um, your body can get you so far, but if you don't put time in, um, and, and let's be honest, everyone in the NBA has generally 90% plus have put the time in. There's a few freaks that, that probably don't have to put in as much time because they're, they're athletically gifted, um, like, like, you know, top 1% athleticism and they can half play, you're going to be okay in the NBA, but that's really rare. Um, the majority of guys that you know put in a lot of work and that was kind of my story was just putting in the time and effort. 
Yeah, we'll we'll get to the hard work part because there was a lot of um, things that I wanted to dig into as well because there's a lot of um, thoughts that came to my mind between the generational changes and you witnessed um, throughout your time about the generational change from from uh, like let's say the non um, non social media era to social media era and uh, like the, the 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 practices you had to go to in terms of two days and tough practices and physicality. Uh, compared to what it's now, where it's a little bit, little bit easier. Matter of fact, let's talk about it now. Uh, so there, there was you talked about the two days, and I was during the same time coming up in the states as well. And it was like, I mean, it was it was a rough introduction for me to the next level of basketball. But uh, you, you like had to work hard, and you had this perspective of like not having done enough always. You had f- felt like you you had this feeling inside that you needed to work harder and harder and harder. And nowadays, it's more focused on longevity, and I f- it feels like uh, people are working m- out more individually in terms of like pl- focusing on 80% of, of uh, commitment and, and, and hard work, but therefore working uh, playing longer. And for your and during your career, it felt like you were just hundred percent into it, and maybe just if, because of that had a like maybe one or two years shaved of your career. Would you would you say that's that was the case, or would do you when you look back on how do you compare those two generations? Oh, it's it's way different now, um, and it's you know it's almost like uh, with with the way they manage sport performance is they don't want you to do too much extra work um at least at the pro level i mean uh, uh, what what kills me is that you know um the sports science of once you're a professional makes sense because you don't want guys to you know let's say after a team session they're going to do another session and you don't know about it and they're they're getting overly fatigued for games that makes sense for a professional team but that's now gone down into junior at least in australia um, in, in in the US, it has where it's that 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 load management has now reared its ugly head in, in high school and even college, right? And I think that's the prime time where you can overload yourself. Um, you're not going to burn yourself out at 16, 17, 18. Um, you know, we we we'd have two days and still be out sometimes. You know, that night chasing girls, and you know what I mean. Whereas <laughs> yeah, when you're in your, in, your, in, in your mid to late twenties, you have two days, you're wrecked, you're done, right? So um, that's the difference, and I think. You have to put you have to put a lot of time in at a, at a young age, and that gap usually it's usually it's, you you got to love the game all throughout your childhood. Um, so nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, but the real serious time probably it's probably that twelve to fifteen, sixteen. That's the most crucial part for any professional athlete in most sports, to be honest with you. And if if you really put the time and effort in those three or four years, um, you can make it to the next level. But that's that's changing these days, you know. Um, you know, there's a lot of kids that don't put as much time in because they're told not to. You need your rest. You need your because they're emulating what the professionals do, right? So when LeBron's doing load management, you know the best the best kid on his high school team thinks, "Shit, I need to do the load management too to get better." Whereas I, th- I think at that age, you can push yourself a little more. But it's changed. Um, even the tour days in the NBA when I first came in, um, coming from the national team, it was. We we had one point with the national team had three days. We had two 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 practice sessions on the court, um, physicality, and then we had a, a conditioning slash weight session. So it was it was three sessions a day. It was it was bananas. Like you were just wrecked after those camps, right? Um, when I first came into the NBA, they ch- the union changed the 
the rule where you couldn't have two contact sessions a day. It had to be, I think you guys in Europe do the similar thing, right? One of them is like a shooting session, non-contact. They're still pretty hard yeah. and then a, and then a yeah. contact session. Well, the NBA never used to have that. And then, so my first year, the coaches were pretty pissed about it. They, they thought it was bullshit. So they, uh, what they did, I still remember it, uh, was Terry Stotts. He made a joke about it. You know, you guys in the union, we can't do two a days. We can't do two physical uh, sessions a day. Cool, we're going to do our physical in the morning. And for our afternoon session, bring your running shoes. <laughs> and that's, you know, so it was like a bunch of shooting drills with penalties of like actual, you know, 10 up and backs in a minute, suicides, all that stuff. And it was it was, it was was probably harder um, as far as running than the contact session. So I was part of that. So there's definitely a transition. These days, the tour days, um, the later I got in my career, you obviously get those veteran points. Um, you know, Steve Kerr and those coaches, like most of us older guys would only do one session a day because they didn't. They just, you, just, you just don't want a guy to get hurt at that point in the season. You don't want him to be burnt out by January, February in the NBA. So it's all about making sure that you're going to be ready in March, April, May for a deep playoff run and finals run. And we learned that being with the Warriors. Uh, when I was with Milwaukee Bucks, not so much because a goal for us was just to make the playoffs. So you went all in for that. Whereas with Steve Kerr and the Warriors, they knew we'd be there somewhere at the end. So it was almost a chess game to make sure, you know, to be honest, most teams that win, the, the, the probably top four or five teams that really have a chance to win a championship, usually the most healthy out of them wins it, usually. Um, or they're right there. You know, if you have a major injury, you're in some trouble. And, and we saw that even last season with, with Kevin Durant and he was limited a little bit coming back early. And then, you know... Uh, Milwaukee got them at the end of the day. They, they were probably the more healthy team. So that's just how it goes. Especially the top guys, right? Um, and I think, I feel like it's, there's, a, there's a thin line. Because my, my father was playing, he was coming up through the Soviet Union um, uh, regime, let's say, with, when they were practicing also three days. He said like early morning, early morning running session, then you go in a gym hard, and then you go in a gym in the evening hard again. So... Times times change, but I feel like there is a thin line, and like you, like you said, like in the youth sector, I think it's mandatory to to push them to their limits because otherwise they will not know how to push themselves in a game through tough situations, through tough times, tough moments when you're tired, when you're fatigued. There's like you you get off the cliff and you 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 hold them back at a young age. They will not understand what it takes to do it during the games. I feel like. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt about it. And and you just have to understand that it, it does take time on the court. You know, learning the game, learning, having a basketball IQ, that, that some of it's natural, but a lot of it's just time spent. It's, you know, the figure that I always quote when I do speaking gigs, like I do some speaking seminars sometimes. And for, I guess for any industry or any sport, they say 10,000 hours, um, it takes 10,000 hours to master a craft, right? So if you do the math and you're, you know, you never master a sport, but you can be at the upper echelon. Ten thousand hours is a lot of hours to put in, and that's that's training at a decent clip, not like shooting with your boys at the park, right? So if you yeah. do the math, that's that that's a that's you know even if you're doing two or three hours a day, um, seven days a week, twenty thirty hours, <laughs> you know, you times that. Yeah, by man, that's a, a thousand days. It's only you know what I mean. So it's only yeah. twenty three hundred. So yeah, you've got you've got you've got a lot of a lot of time to put in, and that goes for everything. It goes for if you want to be a plumber or a carpenter or a rock star or play the guitar, it's ten thousand hours. So um, you have to put the time in at a young age, and and once you're older, you have the luxuries of being able to turn it back because once you're in your professional career, you, you've kind of the base that you've built from. 11, 12 to 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, that's basically the base you're going to have for your career. It's very hard to completely remodel your game beyond that and not many players can do that. 
Yeah, it's 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 about the quality of the ten thousand hours, right? And people say there's the ten thousand hours have been debunked because there's like there's there's different opinions to that, but I feel like it's the it's the quality of the hours that you put in, and not like you said, like playing ball at the park and just like oh, I I, I did put up some shots, but you didn't do it with within a structure, within a system, within a cer- certain regime where you feel like you're accomplishing and you're go- working towards something. I think that's that's where the the, the quality of the hours come in. And video too, like um, yes. weights. Weights count towards those hours. So, you know, recovery can as well. Like anything that's uh, – the biggest thing that I did that actually helped me was I watched a shitload of basketball as a kid and it wasn't by design. I just loved the game so I watched it like NBL, NBA, NBA Game of the Week, NBA Action. I would, um, I would record – in Australia back then we only had one game a week in, which was from the NBA and it was condensed to one hour. So it was the Game of the Week. And then they had the show NBA Action, which I love because it was just highlights of the whole show and then the top 10 plays of the week. So what I would do is I would record both of those shows, um, which would be on a – I think it was a Saturday, a Sunday morning in Australia. I'd watch it Monday, Tuesday. I'd watch the same thing every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then I'd record the next, epi- the next episode and then watch that. And then when it was the off-season – I'd go back to the start of all those highlights and watch them all and, and go through each episode again. And I always had basketball to watch. And whenever it was raining, I couldn't go outside. I'd watch and it just by design, my basketball IQ grew by accident because I just watched so much. Um, you know, even the, the fancy pass that the guy made because, you know, the third side help defender came and it was a touch pass. Why did he do that? Oh, wow. You know, so then I ended up learning some of that stuff just by watching. So... It doesn't just mean on court, um, you know, it could mean getting your body better, stronger, doing some, 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 you know, skipping, whatever it is. But yeah, there's a lot of time you can put into your craft. And I mean, everyone, everything is debunked these days, but I still think if most kids <laughs> that have a decent base of skill and, and, and qualities and, and they're a decent player at 11, 12, and they put in a shitload of time, I feel like they're going to have a better chance to be a better player than that kid that every kid at 11, 12, that was the most talented kid in our state, none of them made made it professional. Um, there was one, Reese Carter, who was on that team with Lee Jacker, actually. He made it. He was the number one prospect, um, and he ended up being one of the one of the worst guys out of that group professionally. Um, but he was the number one prospect from like 13, 14, 15. Um, and I still remember all the names when I was 11 and 12. You, know, you hear about names at other teams, oh, this guy's a shit. Like, this, oh, man, he's really good. None of them made it professionally, right? And that's that's generally how, how it works in most sports. Yeah, I feel like there's there's a lot of things that play into that. The first foundational foundation is love. You have to love the game. Uh, like for me, I was growing up in Germany and there was like one live game a, a, a week as well. And I was watching it from Sunday to Monday, uh, Sunday into Monday, three o'clock in the morning, three to six. And then, you know, recording it, sometimes not recording, but you watch it. I'm watching it and I have to go to school like within the next, <laughs> the next hour or so wrecked completely and that's that's when you feel like you like that's the what you you have to absolutely be committed naturally you cannot force yourself to love it and then uh like i was getting myself hyped before practice watching the jordan documentaries back then there was like this trilogy that came out and you just keep watching you keep watching you keep loving it more and more you start emulating it and to to a certain degree implementing it in uh, into your games because it's just naturally you're you're absorbing the game so um i think that's that's one foundation. You absolutely have to naturally love it and be committed to it. Yeah, no doubt, hundred percent. And that's yeah, it goes with most industries, I, I think. Yeah. Um, just to go back uh, to your to your background, because I prepared different different uh, areas of 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 uh, of your life. Um, 
to go back to your background and and, and personal life, it seemed like from what I was listening to your to your episodes um, that you have really strong principles and beliefs, and the value system was very strong. Um, could you talk a little bit about how like how it was implemented early on? I think it was um, I I assume it was through your parents or through your father to coming up and having strict structure in your daily life. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> My parents are from the Balkans, so I'm um, go figure. They're, they're, they're strict. My my father's father was really strict, and then the lineage was even stricter as you went up and up to great grandparents, yeah. right? And they, um, you know, my family didn't have a lot growing up in Croatia, and um, I guess it's just it just you had to work. It was, um, you know, <laughs> my father ran his own business um, as a mechanic, um, essentially carburetor fuel specialist, um, but he was. You know, the weekends he was always fixing something around the house, so he never stopped. Saturday, Sunday, yeah. he'd be fixing something, mowing the lawn, washing the cars, just doing something, right? And it was, it was almost, it, was, it wasn't great as a kid at times because you know, if I was training all week, and I'd come, um, it'd be a Saturday, and I'd have three or four hours off before the next game, or, or don't have anything on the Saturday, and I'd be lying on the couch. If if he came inside, you know, he's doing something outside, building something, mowing the lawn. He comes inside for a coffee and sees you laying there doing nothing. It was the worst possible thing um, in the world. So I, I figured to try to avoid him or just get out of the house at all costs because he'd, be, he'd look at you and be like, nothing to do, huh? Uh, bored, bored, are you? Okay, come with me and, you know, give you a shovel or give you some. And that, that was kind of the upbringing. It was like there's always something to do. There's always something you can help with on the house. And if you're not training for basketball, you should be doing X, Y, Z. So that's kind of how I grew up to, to be always kind of doing something and, and it was there always you know it just wasn't an excuse to do nothing my family weren't going to be people that um, lived off the government and you know um, done nothing and kind of were just were just lazy sitting at home or you know we had every excuse under the sun to be victims of, of racism and victims of um, you know the society being migrants and you know that we we see a lot of that today um, that that's kind of you know, noted a lot in the media about people being victimized, and, and that that's 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 human beings. You got to you know, as, as much as that sucks at times, I'm not condoning it. You, you got to get on with it. You have to get on with it and push through it. And if you let those people get you down about their comments or how you feel in society, um, then it's going to be even a hundred times worse. But if you keep punching back and grinding and fighting and doing those things, and that's kind of what we're taught to do. But um, you know, it's it's easier said than done. It was hard. My, my my father probably took the brunt. My father and mother both took the brunt of what our family has today, is because they, you know, he moved at fourteen, fifteen, not knowing a word of English. So, at a time when Australia, you know, we see stuff in the media today about racism and, and all of this in Australia in two thousand twenty one, and it's it's one percent of what it was in the in the seventies and eighties to what my father experienced not knowing English, you know, um, that's, it was really bad back then. And it's, that's what he says to this day. Like there's no racism really today in Australia. Like I don't, what I copped in the seventies and eighties was, was torturous for a 15, 16 year old. And his way was to fight, fight his way out of it was to basically punch everyone in the face. That was, that was talking shit to him. And that's kind of how he got through his day. That's all he knew. And, but yeah, I mean, my father's way of living was, was work and, that's pretty much instilled in, in most of the family. Yeah, if like today's today's uh, episodes, everything that happens is so magnified through through the media, through social media, it just goes around, goes viral, and then it just gets like we're living in the best possible lifetime, best possible world compared to what it was like 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago. And we're not realizing it as we go through it. But it seems like, I mean, like 
the, your father, your your parents were the prime example of how you are, how you went about your business later on with putting in the work. And uh, you said like res respecting work. And that's one thing I learned from Messina as well. Like when I was working, uh, I spent two years with Messina in the locker room basically. And it's just like he implements that to whatever you do, whenever you apply your craft, you have to respect your work. You build the lead, you have to respect that you build the lead, the work that you put in and not to give it up again. So Those are little things that also, I think, through your value system are visible, um, the way you your, your childhood went, the way you was brought up. And there's one thing that stood out also uh, when you were talking about respecting money, because you, you didn't have to, even you moved off campus your second year and you, you found yourself like running out of money quickly and you had to get a job and you did get a job as being the best college athlete at that time and basketball player at that time. Um, How did you, how did you feel doing that? Did you feel that you that you that that's what I, that's what I have to do? I just have to do it. That's how it is, and I I I move through it. Or or were you like um, like how were you dealing with that? Basically, I, I'm 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 trying to understand. Imagine. Oh man, it was hard. It was it was hard. I still remember. Um, you know, we I went and asked our coach for money first and foremost. Said, I need you know it's illegal. But I've got no money to eat. Like I can't. I got no. I screwed up. I shouldn't have moved off campus. But I've done that now. And by the time I paid my rent and my fuel and you know utilities, I had you know hundred dollars left for the whole month to eat and get around, which is pretty. You know, it lasted about a week and a half, two weeks. And what I would do is I'd take a lot of food home when we had practice the take the leftovers and, and eat that for a day or two but it got to a point where i needed i needed more money and my grandmother got an inheritance um from one of from a divorce uh, from my grandfather from 20 30 years prior finally got the settlement not inheritance settlement and she gave me a little bit of money which helped but it didn't get me over the line so yeah i went to the coach i said i, I need some cash and they said we can't give you cash we can try to help you find a job so i got a job at a from a sponsor of ours or a booster Um, he owned a bar called Skybox. So every Friday and Saturday night, I had to. It was five till ten on Friday and Saturday. Um, and I, in Utah, I was I was only eighteen or nineteen. I was nineteen, going on twenty uh, at the time, and I, I wasn't legal enough to drink. So in Utah, there was a law where you couldn't serve alcohol if you couldn't if you weren't of age. So I couldn't be a waiter. Um, I, all all I could do was run food. So my job was just when the food comes on the line to help the waitresses out and take the food out to people, and it was a hard job. It was like it was really hard because you're on your feet all day uh, for five straight hours. You don't sit down. You can barely go to the bathroom. You have to go quickly. Um, and on top of that, I was having I was still working the job during training camp, so I was having tour days, um, and then had to had to run off and go go to work on Friday and Saturdays and. Yeah, I remember. I I hated it, but I had to do it, and it gave me enough of a of a of, of a of a buffer zone to at least get me through. So, you know, working those ten hours, I was getting ten, fifteen, twenty bucks an hour. I can't remember what it was. I think I was getting paid good money. It was like twenty bucks an hour they gave me. So it gave me a couple hundred dollars each weekend that I could just bank up and save, and then and then it got me through. You know, till till the end of the season. Barely. <laughs> I mean, that's, it sounds like I me, mean, like you think, trying to imagine like the, the best college player uh, in, in the country <laughs> barely getting through, yeah. through the season. I mean, it's, it's, it was hypocritical and to say the least. It's gotten better yeah. now, but it was hypocritical at the time. Yeah. And I was, I wasn't happy about it. The thing, the thing I wasn't happy about was that, you know, I walk into the, um, the bookstore and my jersey's for sale. You know, there's a Bogut jersey in there. They're making money. It didn't have my name on it, it just had number four, but everyone, it, obviously, it was my jersey. I can't get a cut of that, um, and it wasn't. I'm not. I wasn't one of those athletes that 
you know, I've said from even since I was in college, I, I didn't need hundreds of thousands of dollars. All I wanted was to be able to take a girl out to the movies, go to dinner, live a normal life like once a week, you know, um, be yeah. able to eat food and fill up my car. So for me, that was just like, give me a couple of grand a semester, like three, four grand in college for a semester. He's like, man, you're living like a king, right, in college. So yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like I wanted all, all these perks and stuff. And that, that's what frustrated me about the college system was that they're using my name to sell tickets and I wasn't the clear number one, um, you know, prospect in, in America. I swept all the awards and um, – but I wouldn't change it. I think it was um, an important lesson that I had to go through the the grind and grueling parts of, of – even the success at times to, to realize that once you get there, you value it even more. And I think it, 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 it is a piece of, of who I am, I said, essentially, right? Yeah, it gives you like it gives you a you feel like you earned it. You feel like you 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 got something accomplished and you earned it and you feel good about yourself too, that you really earned the money and that makes you it plants a seed for your future life as well as you're going up. Like I'm I I was brought up similarly in terms of like uh, counting making sure that you're 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 not spending money very vigorously and and uh whenever you put in the work in that you also value the the money that you get in for that i in college i also like summer jobs that i had to work that to in order to afford the insurance for the card and in order to afford the uh, the car itself at uh, one time i i remember i had to go back uh, after I, i did my knee in college and the summer job that i took back in germany one summer And I was at the pizza place and I was standing up all day as well. Like you were like, I was, uh, it reminded me of that. And I remember I was going through that and I, at one point, and I regret it till this day because it felt it's, it's still implemented in me that I quit, you know, I quit on the job, although it was for my health because my knee was starting to ache, but I quit the wrong way. I, I walked away without calling one day, just two weeks or three weeks into it. I was like, man, f forget this. This is, this is bull crap. And, and I just didn't come in. But the worst thing is that my friend helped me get that job. So I didn't throw under the, I didn't throw myself under the bus or the pizza him, company, yeah. him, you know? So I feel like that it hurts until this day. And I, 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 um, yeah, but this, this it was a lesson that I reflect on that I will never do it again because it hurts. So, um, it's an important lesson yeah, for sure. Yeah, F finding finding identity as a player. I wanted to talk because you 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 uh, uh, evolved from a guard to a big throughout your time. You were started as a guard, and Sabonis Senior, by the way, was also similar. Like he play started playing as a guard, and then all of a sudden he grew and he had all the guard skills as as a big. But I wanted to make uh, to to figure out when did you feel like you had this. Um, identity change and you felt like you really understood who you are as a player because it's a it's a big skill set you gain throughout your career throughout throughout your uh, youth uh, as as a guard and then coming up growing and then growing to your body and finding yourself like when did you feel like you understand who you are as a player oh man i, I had numerous changes so i started as a big uh at 10 11 um because i was the biggest kid in the group so i was like you're the center go stand on the basket that was kind of the mentality And then I, I didn't grow for a while for some reason. Like I just didn't grow for like a year or two. I, I barely grew anything and then everyone shot by me. I was a real late developer and then I was like, shit, I'm like a 2-3 right now. I need to start, you know, <laughs> I was bringing the ball up. I was I used to, you know, I used to shoot the, the three ball really well as a kid. Um, and then as I got to 15, 16, it was clear I was going to be, you know, close to seven foot. So then I had all these guard skills and, and the guy that I work with, you know, I, got, I had a guy that I work with here in Australia from – um serbian croatian half serbian half croatian guy and his whole thing was like don't we're not pigeonholing you to a position i want you to be able to play all kind of positions don't don't get pigeonholed you'll probably end up being a four or a five but 
that'll come, learn all the different skill sets. And then, you know, so in college and even early on in my MBA career, I was a much more mobile, um, big that could do a lot of things, go coast to coast with the ball. I was still shooting jumpers at that point in college. I shot, you know, I think low 30s from three, like not at a big scale, but if you left me wide open, I'd shoot them. Kind of Sabonis kind of senior-ish, like, you know, wide open, feet set, I'd, I'd knock it down. And then and then through the injuries, it kind of changed the scope where I became more of that, that traditional um, utilities big. So I've gone I've gone through many different phases of, of position basketball. I mean, I played before um, my whole rookie year in the NBA next to Jamal McGlure, you know, so yeah. – um, and that's also a testament to what the game's changed now, right? It's it's more skinny mobile bigs, the big banging shacks. They're just not not found much anymore. It'd be interesting to see if a, a shack type guy came into the league today, how that would work because you know they pick and roll the shit out of him. But on the other end, it's like you got an Anthony Davis guarding a shack. So that'd be something I really want to see in the future. But yeah, man, I mean, I've had I've had different phases, and I, I appreciated all of them, and. Would have liked to have still been that mobile guy later on in my career to be able to shoot the three with the way the game was going, but it just it went past me. And once I lost that kind of skill and you know became more of a defensive, rugged, rebounding guy, that was it. Yeah, but that's like nine for twenty-five your sophomore year from from three. So that's one thing I also jotted down because you were kill or you were you were beating the shoot for your license drills and you were able to shoot it in the games because uh, you were making the 35 out of 50 I think it was that you said the the, the coach uh, I think was, it was making yeah, that shoot. was a that was a tough drill too by the way a real tough drill yeah yeah I think it was above 35 you had to make yep yeah and you're like there's shooters that didn't make that that drill so like allow me allow me to be direct but it's it was you know from from a shooting big to to like you said to a non-shooting to like a rugged defensive defensive play uh, big who passes and and makes the 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 offense go around um i was wondering was that a like a mental uh, um, regression or was it based on the system that you played on that had to do had you do certain things that made you play a certain way and then in order for that you regressed in in the shooting area i was a mix of things to be honest with you um you know i, I didn't really shoot him a lot in the nba just the way we we played it was more that that two it was three out two in my rookie year and first couple of seasons myself and jamal was the way the game was played i still shot 18 footers at a decent clip um and just never really felt comfortable shooting the long three in the NBA. Um, got a few up, but then, you know, I'd go to the like 2008 Olympics. I think I was top top three in three-point field goal percentage, I believe. You might have to look it up, but I was up there top five possibly. Um, I really shot the ball well. I think it was five for whatever it was or six for whatever it was. Um, and, yeah, and then just uh, go back to the NBA and played more of a role inside. Um, then the injuries came, and then once I snapped my elbow – that's when, when my game really changed. Like I, I snapped my elbow, um, broke my elbow, fully hyperextended it, chipped the bone, um, broke my wrist and broke my finger all in the same injury. And it took me it took me a long, long time to even be able to shoot the ball with my right hand again. And so then I came – I rushed back from that injury probably too soon. I did it in – I think it was March. Um, you know, I made All-NBA 13 that year. I probably should have been an All-Star. Really felt like everything was coming together in my career. Um, and then I was back on the court stupidly in, in September already um, from that injury. So it was four or five months and I just rushed back. I had no flexibility in my elbow. I couldn't extend it. And I tried to come back and play because, you know, I was a franchise guy. I was like, you know, I want to be out there for the team and 
couldn't shoot the ball. Like, luckily, I had a left hand. I still averaged a double double that year, I believe. But then that's when the free throws went downhill. So, like, I never really, mm-hmm. I wasn't a phenomenal free throw shooter before that, but I never really had any mental problems with it. I just didn't, never even thought about it, right? Some games I go five for five, some games I go two for seven. Didn't bother me. Then when I started getting hacked, um, hacker shack, that really started to mess with me mentally because I knew, mm-hmm. I just knew my technique and my elbow. Um, so, I had, I had, a, I didn't know at the time that that, that season after I did it, had the surgery and I, I was getting pain in my elbow. Like one out of five, one out of ten shots, I'd shoot the ball and on the extension, it'd feel like someone just rammed a, a knife in my in my elbow joint. And I'm telling the trainer like something's wrong. I can feel like it's, it's it happens every now and then to the point where like a, the ball would just yeah, – I'd miss everything, right? It'd be like, oh, what the hell's going on? Like you're crazy, you're fine, you just got to play through it. And then end of the season when I got a scan, I had a massive um, floating bone that was moving around in that little – little ass elbow joint which explained it right but long story short so then that mentally kind of messed with me a little bit and then yeah my my shot just went out of the window and just something i never really was aggressive with and be able to was able to get back because of that injury and then thankfully um scott skiles really leaned on me to be a good defensive big when he was in milwaukee and and then that became my elite skill set was shot blocking protecting the rim setting good screens and still being a guy that could get you know, 10 or 15 on, on any given night with Milwaukee at that point, but getting 10, 15 rebounds, you know, quarterback in the defense. So then when I got traded to Golden State, it was a perfect fit because I didn't need to carry that offensive load anymore. I could just concentrate on rebounding and doing the little things. And, and it was a perfect um, cog in, in, the, in the wheel that was, you know, the juggernaut of the Golden State Warriors throughout that that era. Yeah, you, you're already, you're already um, the best defender in college as well. So just kind of like that, that skill, whenever that – you you were given this new role and a bigger role and probably just elevated your your defensive uh, skill set to the next level and through the injury i suppose that that's how your left hand also got developed to to the next level because you were with, yeah. throughout your career your left hand got better towards the second half of your career and whenever we faced you it was also that was very noticeable uh in in terms of like how you finish with the left hand and and uh that helped you to be a little bit more um, universal on the floor. Yeah, I mean, I always had a left. Um, probably from teenage years, it was just something my trainer reiterated on me. Was we did a lot of stuff with the left hand, even when I couldn't even make a layup. And then, thankfully, I had that. I was confident enough to go to that instead of my right, where it got so bad with my right hand that, like you said, teams were actually forcing me to go to my my strong hand, which is my right <laughs> hand, because they knew they knew like don't don't even put it in his left. So. Um, and then the, th- the thing you say about defense in college, I, w- I wasn't known as a great defender in college, and the reason was because I-, I couldn't afford to get in foul trouble. So there were a lot of times where our coach would be like, "Look, I don't really, I don't want you blocking shots because we need you on the floor. Um, we can't have you foul out early on in the season. I had a couple of games where I get two or three fouls in the first half, and then it'd throw me off a little bit. So they were like, just sometimes just let them lay it up. So then I got I got a stigma saying that I was a, a bad defender coming into the NBA, and that I was a real poor defender, a plotter, and that's other thing that I was proud of was that, you know, making an all-defensive team and uh, led the league in block shots one year. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, that that, that was world-class scouts saying that that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I managed to don't, – don't get me wrong, I wasn't a fantastic defender. I didn't know the NBA game that well. But then Scott Skiles really um, taught me how to be, you know, the quarterback of a defense as a big guy is what you should be. You, you're the eyes and ears of everybody. You can clean up messes, spot fires. You can overhelp sometimes if you need to and just reading the game that way. And thankfully I had that because when my offensive game kind of declined a little bit, I was still elite at that level. If I didn't have that 
at the same time as my offensive game going downhill. I probably would have been out of the league much quicker than I was. So that that's what I was I was wrong about. I I, I had this in my mind that you made all all uh, third third team all uh, defense that I was in the NBA, but NBA, uh, yeah. in t- yep in in terms of in terms of uh, still having instincts to to defend and knowing the timing of blocking shots, when to reach, when not to reach, what to do in certain situations. Brad Stevens also talks about that you can teach a player how to defend. But I was wondering what were like the 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 one like if you had to pick out one thing that one key thing that Scott Skiles taught you on the defensive end, how to be the quarterback. How what was the the number one thing that uh, elevated your defensive um, ability? I think he he held everyone accountable. Um, that was the first thing with Scott. You know, he, he gets a hard rap sometimes because he can be a little too disciplinarian in the NBA. But you know, it's as simple as. I still remember a couple of games. I came to the help side rotation. You know, early on in a game, I'd come come late to a help side rotation. He'd take you out with a minute a minute in the game, <laughs> sit you on the bench, and then put you put you back in six seven minutes later. But it'd be more like a young. Yeah, I'm going to disrespect you in front of the fans on purpose. Come sit down for a bit, and then you go back in. And it was so yeah. the biggest thing I learned from him, and just in the NBA in general, was um, with help side as a big, it's always better to come earlier, um, get there early, and you know. Even as the as the pick and roll is going on from that wing, and you think he's, if he turns that corner, he's going to be coming downhill. Just get outside that box early, and, and then obviously with the defensive three seconds, you have to cleanse yourself anyway out of the paint. So just just go and get there early, and then work your way back to your man. Um, now there's some guys you can't do that with um, lob threats, but then again there are guys you can do that with who are lob threats if your back line is in sync with you, and that's why like a guy like Andre Iguodala, I mean, and then myself, Andre. Draymond Green on the floor together. Defensively, we we could dictate where the offense was going to go because we were just so smart. Yeah. You know, Andre knew when I was going to leave early to overhelp and vice versa. I knew when Draymond was going to lunge it for a steal and maybe miss it. It was just like in sync and it wasn't even spoken about. And so, yeah, the biggest thing I probably learned as a big was on that help side, make sure you get there earlier. And the other thing is if you get there late, you're going to be on a poster. So, um, that's a bonus that you ended up on a poster and I haven't been on very many a few people have got me but for the most part I'm, I'm found the shit out of you or I'm blocking your shot so um, you guys have got me and, and that was mainly because I got there late yeah but so basically getting getting up high on a pick and roll early and stop the ball as as to give the ball handler some pause in uh, before he makes a decision and then getting back in, uh, back to your man in no, time not even to, the pick and roll to- no no not even the pick and roll so if I'm the help side defender um, oh, okay. On, on okay. The split line under the basket, and there's a pick and roll going on on that on, on either wing. It's anticipating that if there's a breakdown or that guard splits or whatever, that if you're already halfway there early, and I'm showing my numbers to him outside the paint, and then I'm working back to my defender that's behind me that I'm helping off. That's what I mean. So gotcha. that that's that's yeah. kind of um, what you can afford to do in the NBA, and and you kind of have to do because you know Euro League and that's different, and Europe because you can stand in the middle of the paint. There's no three seconds, whereas. Yeah. In the NBA, if I'm standing next to my man and waiting to anticipate when to go, a lot of times you're going to get there too late because they're too, ath- yeah, the NBA are too athletic. So it's more yeah. I'm going to start hedging towards that side of the lane. And then while I'm there, I get my two feet out and I cleanse myself from the three defensive three seconds. As soon as you get your two feet out, you get a new recount and then you're just kind of moving in and out. Um, that's what I figured out. And that, that, that takes some time and just being with someone that knows, you know, a coach that knows the game and then having teammates that – you know, I've been on horrible defensive teams before um, where I would go and do that and they'd throw it over my head and get a lob dunk and then I'm looking behind me like, where the hell is my crack back? Where's my – like, where's my – and it's guys that just didn't care, right, on shitty teams. So on great teams, that that hardly ever happens. How much how much talking was involved? 
oh, look, there's talkings involved. Um, you have to talk, but um, I, I think talking's uh, you know under underrated. You have I think just talking can get you motivated sometimes as well. Um, mm-hmm. But with like I said, with the Draymond and Iguodala, once you've played with each other long enough and your IQs that high that that uh, that we had defensively. It, 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 we we didn't have to talk, but we still did. So we didn't have to. We, I just knew. Oh, he's going there. I'm going here. It was just automatic, 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 automatic. Um, but we still did talk on top of that. Same page, basically. I mean, it's like you said, like in, instinctual. And if you guys, if you got guys on the same team that have high level instincts and have the experience to come to go with it, it's just it's going to happen naturally because once you understand the game where the rotations is go- rotation is going or has to be. Then it's uh, you 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 figure each other out. I guess like the more the longer you play together, the more the, the easier it is. Yeah, and that's probably the hardest thing in the NBA is because teams just don't stay together long enough. Um, so yeah. you know we were together for five six years there in Golden State, and it just goes to show that if you can keep a core group together of your top seven, top eight, make little tweaks along the way, it can sometimes you know fix a lot of problems that you have because you just. You know, you don't have to have as much as a, a, of a training camp because you already know how to play yeah. with each other. You know, yeah. so it's there's a lot of positives to keeping teams together for longer periods, which just doesn't happen very often in the NBA anymore. Uh, that's what, uh, before before we we go into some some uh, technical details about the coaching parts that I wanted to touch on. Um, talking about identity, but if you have you gotten the chance to reflect and think about what your life or your your playing career would have been like as a player. While if the social media era existed during your time, because there's there's so much, and I, that's my that's pet peeve, you know, with this with this topic, and everybody just like rolls their eyes when they hear me talk about it. So I apologize to everybody who's listening that they, they hear me talking about it over and over again. But I I think about stuff like what would I've been like, what have my career would have been like, or what, how would I have handled it? Because it feels like during our part it was more a physical challenge. And now, through this generation, it's more of a mental challenge of dealing with all this attention and dealing with all this media attention that you're more absorbed what's going to happen on your on your social media account than you are on of what's going to happen on the court. Have you gotten a chance to to think about back and forth about what would have been? Yeah, well, look, social media probably came in midway through my career. So 2000, what was it, 2008, 9, 10, somewhere around there is when it really started. My, to- MySpace, MySpace was around, I think, came out like five, something like that. MySpace was the first trigger for me, but it, it was not as big. And then Facebook and then, was like, out around then, and then I yeah. think Twitter. Twitter was probably the explosion when it really started, um, and that was yeah. – I still remember. I think I think it might have been 08, 09 because I know – I believe it was Charlie Villanueva was on my team where he tweeted at halftime. That's uh, the reason I know, and, and I, you know, I only played with him a couple of seasons, so it had to have been in there somewhere. He tweeted at halftime about, you know, hey, we need a better second half. Put the tweet out, and the NBA <laughs> didn't have any. There was no rules around it then because social media was new, right? So that's the only reason I remember it was around that era. But um, yeah, look, being being the number one pick, um, and and, and social media probably would have been harder for me. You know, I didn't live up to being a number one pick. Uh, the first season, I mean, I was nine and seven my rookie year. Um, didn't play a lot, and then I started to get better and better. So maybe that would have affected me more. Um, whereas the same way, if I would have got drafted by a New York Knicks or a Los Angeles Lakers, the pressure would have been much more immense than in Milwaukee as a number one pick. So I was lucky in that in that sense. But look, social media it has its pros and cons. Um, it's it's I guess how you use it. I've like I've I've, I've spoken about numerous times. Steph Curry after a bad half would check his mentions and use that 
and then come out and drop 40 in the next half. Um, <laughs> you know, and that, that's kind of worked for him, right? Um, where there's other guys that, that can send him the other way and there's other guys that probably spend too much time and there's guys that don't care about it all. It, it all depends how you use it. Um, that's what I've figured out. There are a lot of perils to it, but there's also a lot of pros. I've met a lot of fantastic people through social media. Of network business deals, of network with coaches and, and, and shared information. And um, so there is a lot of pros. You have to remember that. But look, it's just a different era, um, especially now. It's not really even Twitter. It's it's Instagram and and that and it's about it's about living that life, you know. Um, it's it's all about um, I'm a baller and I've got the nice car and the nice girl and the nice house. Or, you know, that's what it's more about these days than it is being an athlete. So with 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 um with basketball, there's there's basketball and the athlete, but now it's that whole lifestyle. That's that's the cool part about it. It's not so much that you're a professional athlete playing one of the toughest you know leagues in the world. You're the best. You're the top 400, 500 in your craft. It's nothing. No one cares about that anymore. It's everything yeah. else. You get along with it, and and you see it in NBA two K now. Like I don't play video games, but I've heard that on the latest one, you can you know do all that stuff and hang with your boys in the video game. You know, so it's, a, it's obviously a big part of what they're trying to sell. You can go to the barber shop, you can buy a car, all that kind of stuff. So that's just the the world we're living in. It's it's all about flash and bang, and yeah, you you want. Um, you know what what it does for a young mind is probably not good. You know, at eighteen, nineteen, twenty, I don't think a lot of people are ready for that, um, and that that can be can be detrimental and go the other way. But you know, you just got to kind of know yourself. If that affects you, I think you should probably turn it off. That's one thing that you like using it as an adolescent and using it as a grown up is a difference, and and it feels like and it from your from your episodes also that mentorship is a huge part of that mentorship while like while you're growing up, how to dealing with it now but also back then as you were preparing what was mostly what 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 is ingrained in my mind from the episodes i heard was how important and valuable the mentorship was from by uh Maddie clark and your your agent david bauman because they're both it seemed like they were not taking any crap from like when whenever there was like shit hit the fan uh, whether it was at utah or whether whether it was in uh at the ais when there's like some challenges coming up maddie clark was like i i enjoyed listening to him genuinely for, because he seems like the perfect mentor the way he uh like expresses himself the way he talks about uh, certain situations in life that you have to you know step step over um fight through but also uh david bauman how he's preparing you for the uh for, to be the number one pick and throughout this whole process can you tell to me how how important that mentorship was at the time and having the right people around you to keep you in straight in line on that yeah marty's marty's integral part of a lot of um australia's best players myself delhi um patty mills joe ingles you know the list goes on he's had his fingerprints on all those guys and um He's, you know, he's coached professionally. He's coached the Boomers. He's coached college, but I think his best strength is just that day to day. He's just very even keel. He's the same every day, um, and he had that kind of intimidating factor when you're a young kid that you were scared to kind of go into his office and get chewed out by him. You know, it was no nonsense. And I spoke about it. there was some games. He told me to leave the bench, go back to the locker room, you know, go away. And um, but. Deep down, once you reflect, you realize that he likes that. You know, he likes that in in guys like myself, that fire and going back and forth. And the most important thing you come to realize with maturity and once you become from a boy to a, you know, a teenager to a man is that mistakes are good. You know, mistakes are, 
are natural and they're going to happen. Um, it's it's how you learn from those mistakes and it's correcting them. And that was the hardest thing when you're younger. You think like you made a mistake or you've done something stupid that the world's going to end. It's That, that wasn't a big deal for, for Ramadi Clark. It was the next day after that mistake, um, which mm-hmm. can go two ways for most people, right? And that's the same as basketball. You have a bad game. You miss a shot. It's always next place. So Marty was huge. Um, really enjoyed my time with him and he's just such a, a really good person. Um, and then you've got who was the other name you mentioned? Sorry, uh, David Bowman. Oh, David Bowman, your agent. Yes, yeah. So, yeah I, I was look. I was lucky. I'm not going to lie. Like to, to sign with them, I, I didn't go through a deep recruiting process. They recruited me in 2003 at the World Junior Championships. World Champion. Yep. Um, and yeah, I, I didn't know a whole lot about the game. Was flying blind. We ended up just signing. The, the, the woo was that he was Michael Jordan's agency. So we're like done. <laughs> um, box ticked, and and yeah, I was lucky that I just chose someone that actually was a good person and guy and had morals and was a lawyer by trade so I understood the business world and he's just so much different to a lot of these agents you see today um, you know trying to make guys influencers he's not, not about any any of that and it just fit in perfectly and I honestly believe you know it was just a gift from above that it worked out that way um, because if you, you know you choose the wrong agent it can go horrendously wrong for you um, not only with your career, but financially and family and all that. So that, that worked out perfectly. And, and look, David and I are still friends to this day. We, we speak a fair bit and he's, um, yeah, he's still, still doing some, some agent stuff over there in the U S and, and doing pretty well, but he's a, you know, he's a smaller guy. He's not a big, big lights agency, which I think suits him perfectly. But you know, the unfortunate thing is there's a lot of guys that don't want that these days. They want the name in lights and, you try to tell young guys, like, go to the guy that's not the name in lights because they're going to give you more time. They're going to answer your phone call. They're going to make sure that you they have an incentive for you to do well when you're just another name and number in these big agencies. Yeah, you're with the cool agency, but, you know, he's taking the 10 players that are better than you use phone call before he takes yours. So that's just something that it's, it's hard to explain to young guys. But, though, yeah, those two guys were – you know, a tremendous um, help throughout my career, and I think David, especially away from basketball, just just his his business savvy and mentorship. Um, times when I'm losing my shit about a coach or a GM or wanting to be traded, and he'd always always have an even keel, balanced take on things, and and kind of talk you off the ledge in a good way, and get on with it. He was not a yes man, but he was very cerebral in his approach. It felt like, I mean, I, I don't know him personally, but it felt like he was, like you said, even keel, cerebral, and understood right from wrong with the with the judging the situation correctly um thinking about about that but moving on more into the uh, mentorship or uh, scouting approach uh, during the games uh, what do you expect from your assistant coaches before and during the game mostly what's what's the number one thing that you like the information that you want to have whether it's post defense how they defend you so you're ready for where the traps are coming from um, what what's what's the what's too much information but what's the most like key information that you need as a big man uh, look everyone's different everyone's everyone I know a lot of guys that want a lot of clips um, before games I know guys that don't watch any film uh, for me the biggest thing I wanted before games was um, just the the shot chart for guys I'm playing are uh, going to be guarding. So if I'm guarding, you know, a, a, potentially a four sometimes and a five, so the Clippers would be Dondre Jordan back then and, and Blake Griffin and the backup would have been, you know, Ryan Hollins, for instance. I want those three printouts of – you can get those shot charts in the NBA that cut the court, half court into, you know, 16 spots and it, and it basically says from this block, from 10 feet, from you know, there's the, there's the kind of little heat check 
heat mark things and it says, you know, he's 10 for 31 from this block, but he's 20 from 30 on this block. Um, mm-hmm. From the elbows, he's this. I wanted to know kind of what what portions of the floor to push that player towards. So that's what I used a lot. Um, and that, that worked well for me. Same as their, if I'm going to be involved in a lot of pick and rolls and I'd look at, you know, um, like a Dame Lillard, is he shooting more going left? Is he shooting the pull-up three more going left? Or Because you'd notice nuances where a Dame maybe shoots it more going left from three and when he when he's going downhill with his right, he's trying to get to the bucket or shoot a floater. So those little you know nuances don't lie in the stats. So that's what I wanted. Um, there's some people that love, um, love getting clips, just quick hitters, 10 or 15 clips. I know coaches that um, positive reinforce, so some coaches that would um, – give some positive clips of things you've done well um, after a game, you know. So it just depends. But look, like you said, you don't want to overwhelm neither. And that, that's a problem that I see with a lot of assistant coaches is they try to overdo things. So my advice would be talk to the player, sit down at the start of the season and say, hey, what do you like? What do you like from an assistant? Do you like this? Do you like that? You know, even your pregame shooting routine, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to bring you some things or do you have your set routine you want me to rebound for? Like whatever it is, right, have that open discussion and then get a feel for each other and, and you never know what you can learn. But I think I think a good mix of it um, in-game, you know, some guys like feedback at halftime, um, probably two or three things. You're doing these two or three things well. You're doing these two or three things bad. Or you need to pick these things up. But, yeah, you just don't want to overwhelm where guys are overthinking things because then – if you're getting five, 10, 15 different bits of feedback from your head coach, assistant, other players, like you're just like, oh shit, you know. Um, Ray Giacoletti at Utah, I can't remember the exact things. I spoke about it on my pod. I think it was it was free throws, um, charges taken, and I think it was the rebound count. There were our three things that we checked. Um, there were our goals before the game were to win those categories, shoot more free throws, um, take more charges, and, and be winning the rebound count. And we check it at halftime. And he'd be like, "We're playing shit because these are our numbers. We're, you know, none of these. We're not hitting any other targets." And funnily enough, with that team, when we hit those three targets, it means we're engaged because we're taking charges. It means we've, we're we're boxing out, and it means we're being aggressive, getting to the rim, to the free throw line. And when we hit those three, we ever—I could be lying—but we ever rarely lost the game if we if we ticked all those three boxes in a game. Outside of shooting percentages and how much points we scored, we maybe lost one out of ten, one out of twenty. Um, so keep things simple. And I think that's the biggest thing and, and just, just ha- have that open feedback dialogue with your player. So correlated. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's 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 good to have that uh, th- setting three goals early on and then always checking back on it. But there's also like the co- coach had this, probably a good sample of what works and what doesn't work leading up until that point. So I think every coach has to figure out in terms of like what league they're playing in and what what uh, what players they face what teams they face what works for them but there's generally like this foundational rebounding taking charges i think that's that's really that's that's uh, that's a huge one um, well, individually I'm not- individually individually you could with an assistant it could be you know um you're not a good post defender so you know keep a guy under 50 percent if he catches it on the block scoring on you or it might be you know you're not boxing out or you give up second chance opportunities whatever it is and figure that out and then challenge your player like hey okay DeAndre Jordan, he's notorious for following his own shot and getting tip-ins. So this game, whenever he takes a shot against you, he gets one shot. And then you evaluate that way. Like at halftime, hey, he's had two second chance opportunities when you were in the game. What you know, come on, you need to you need to get a body on him as soon as he shoots it. Don't go and chase the rebound. So it's things like that. Um, and then challenging the player. 
based on those because they're real direct, easy things to do um, that you don't have to go to a film for at halftime or whatever. And um, that's similar to the three things for a team goal so is to have it have it potentially for an individual as well. But do you you like to be challenged by an assistant coach as well in certain like like that like pointing out that hey like this you need to pick it up because there's like he's 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 going where he wants to go every time he gets he catches it. Yeah, or is that a head coaching job? Um, oh, it, it depends. I mean, the head coach usually is probably going to address it in front of the group, but an assistant can pull you aside, not in front of everyone. I think sometimes put your arm around. It, it all depends. If you've got a coach that's a rah-rah in your face abusing your coach, then I don't think the assistant – I've had assistants then would, would be try to double down on that and the player would already be tuning them out because he's already been cussed out by the head coach, right? But if the head coach is – um, you got the balance. If he's the cuss out guy as an assistant, you probably need to play good cop, bad cop. You know, get him as he's walking out of the ton- out towards the court, arm around him. Hey, man, like coach, you know, coach is a little angry, but you need to pick this up, pat him on the butt, and that's it. And then on the flip side, there's coaches that are, you know, there's coaches that are quiet and too cool for school. Then the assistant might need to be like, come on, man, like, what are you doing? So you just got to read the room, no personalities. The biggest thing with coaching, in my opinion, these days, um, assistant, head coach, even the video coach, it's managing personalities more than anything. I mean, mm-hmm. at least in the NBA, there's not much um, in the way of X's and O's and, you know, this new new offense that's just taken the world by storm or this new defensive principle. Like everything's copied by everyone pretty much. Same as probably in EuroLeague and Europe and internationally. Everything's who can do it harder, faster, better and make their shots and get stops. That's what it comes down to. But coaches that last can manage personalities. And you might have a player that is on your team that you know if you if you cast him out, he's going to shut down into a, into a, you know, a shell. You know that there's another guy, Draymond Green, that if you get into it with him, he's going to go back at you. But that's a good thing because he's fired up. So you got to know your personality. So you almost need a psychology degree to be a coach these days. I think that's just as valuable as the X's and O's because the X's and O's are just becoming, to me, they're becoming the same team to team, especially space, space the floor, shoot more threes. You know, it's, it's all kind of becoming the same. But yeah, it's that that knowing personalities. I think is is the one thing you just have to have as a coach. If you don't have that these days, like you're not gonna you're not gonna last long enough. One hundred percent agree. And I think it's 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 more about knowing people and then implementing that uh, onto the players because it's very instinctual. You have to have a certain experience, but you also have to have uh, be on, being honest to yourself when you're talking to players, and then in turn being honest to the player as well. And authenticity. Is is my mo like in, in everything I do? Like I I don't I'm gonna be the same way here on air and off air. Like there's no there's no kind of difference in, in in what I do and how I am. And I think in terms of coaches, they have to embrace that authenticity now more than they used to because it used to be like putting on putting on like you talked about how Rick Majerus was on the court and then he, as soon as he stepped off it was off it was off to go it was a completely different person like there was just a different different shift in personality and it's it's and that era as we talked it's it's a different era but I think that this um human side is becoming and it has become a much more important factor in, in dealing with humans, dealing with people, understanding, having this empathy and talking honestly about certain things, not only about X's and O's, but also building relationships off the floor. Yeah, you can't you can't have the two personalities anymore. I, I don't think you can. I think players see right yeah. through that. If you're, you know, um, a guy that's not uh, a rah-rah, in-your-face, going crazy guy and, and you try to pull that one game out of 80, guys are going to be like, that's not you. <laughs> and, and on the flip side, if you're, 
you know, the rah-rah guy and then you're trying to be calm and, like, you, players can see that. The personality that yeah. you develop over months and months and months, that's you. Like, so if you try to change it, alarm bells are ringing for guys and um, that's not to say that sometimes it's warranted for, for a coach to go crazy every now and then and spend one of those one of those bullets. But, yeah, you, you just – you have to you have to be the same on the court, off the court, even keel, be that same personality. And I think players have much more respect and they, they know where you stand. So with Majerus, the thing was, like – he just went so overboard with all the abuse on the court that you know you couldn't even. It just it would just rock your brain when he tried to have a normal conversation with you off the court. You were just like, <laughs> like did, you, did you hear what you were saying to me for the last three hours at practice? Like now you're asking me about my mom and my dog and my sister and whatever. And that's what was weird about it, where guys just were shut down and didn't even want to hear it at that point. They, you know, so much so that guys would try to stay away from him off the court. You know what I mean? Because they didn't want to have those awkward conversations. So you got to kind of keep it pretty even keel for sure. Yeah, that's one thing. I, I uh, another thing I wanted to talk to you about coaching before. Uh, I know we're like we're in the soft cap right now with time, <laughs> but uh, in terms in terms of um, system and coach coaching system, like I'm not wearing this for nothing. I mean, I <laughs> we we faced each other a lot of times, and you were here um, for the Euro Euro Tour 2015 when you guys we played some friend uh, friendly. I think one or two we played here in Lithuania. Yeah, two, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep, and then uh, we played 2016 in Rio, and it was it was uh, probably the worst experience up until this summer. So this summer, it's basically this summer pain overriding 2016 summer pain, and both were Olympic pains. But um, you you guys knocked us out in 2016, and I'm sure there's going to be some Lithuanian Lithuanians listening to it. Um, what do you remember from that from that summer? Not necessarily from our game, but. I was fortunate enough uh, to scout Coach Lemanis' system as you guys were going up uh, before you joined them as well. Like it was uh, 2014, we played, I believe, in the World Cup, if I'm not mistaken, in the first group, and then it was going, it was building up, and I could see because I was I was doing the the, the reports, the scouting, the watching the video, like till till the till I was like passing out basically. But I was it was for me 2016 was the peak of the system because you guys learned how to play as as the years as the summers went on and it just became natural reads where it was just so fun to watch i mean it was so fun to watch and i'm not just i'm not just blowing smoke uh, uh, up everybody's ass in australia i'm on i'm generally i was impressed because it was fun to see the progression from from year one basically to to how it progressed and i felt like you guys deserved the medal in 2016 not to take anything away from spain but the the, the, the game itself was was a special game but in terms of what you guys build was very unique yeah i mean that that team was you know obviously getting a bronze a couple of months ago as well was pretty much that core group but um you know andre minus was a big part of that um often forgotten yeah. and, and we were you know in 2016 um look we we had a fantastic tournament and, and international basketball olympic basketball we, we shot the bed against serbia in in, in that in that semi-final game, um, we just we I think we had 14, 14 or sixteen points at halftime. It was we couldn't we couldn't throw the ball, you know, in an ocean. Um, yeah. And they they did a fantastic job of adjusting because we beat them up in the in the pool rounds and credit to them. And then the, the Spain game, we get absolutely hosed on two calls. They they call a um, they call a foul on Aaron Baines with forty seconds. Yeah. They call him for an armbar foul at the three point line guarding Pagasol. Two free throws in the bonus. Then they come down and they call a foul on Paddy Mills where Ricky Rubio, I think it was, Eurosteps Paddy, um, mm -hmm. misses the layup. They go back on replay. That doesn't – there's no contact. He just falls over. Two free throws. 
we were up three at that point um, with 40 seconds left. We lost by one. We didn't score again for the rest of the game, which is obviously our fault, but we, we had control of that game because if they don't call that on pound, they miss that shot, they have to foul. Um, and that's basically put us at the line most likely. And then it's a five, you know, we get up to a two possession game, the game should be over. So there was that one. And then, you know, a similar thing happened in 2019 in the World Cup. Um, they call me for a, I mean, Marcus Sol routes me under the basket. I push back for a box out. The ball bounces the opposite direction from both of us. The referee behind us points the foul out. Had nothing to do with the play. They give him two free throws. He knocks those down and, and ices the game. Um, but before that, Paddy has a chance to, to win the game from the free throw line. He misses a free throw. Um, Delhi comes down before overtime, has a shot to win it. He misses that. So all those bounces and, and Andre Lamanis is arguably one of the best national team coaches of all time. But now he's, he's in that echelon of the other guys that have finished fourth. And it was just a beautiful way to play basketball, in my opinion. He, he, was, he was a real well-balanced coach. Uh, we moved the ball. And yeah, it was that was automatic. That was probably the most automatic uh, a national team that I've been a part of, where we just kind of knew and were happy to buy into our roles. Didn't have to be overcoached. His rotations were pretty good, and we just we just couldn't get it done with the medal. But we still were top four in the world, which I guess is isn't a, looked at as a positive because fourth's the worst place you can finish in international basketball because you go home with nothing. But we still built the national team to what it is today, I believe. Yeah, it was it was natural flow. It was like I said, it was it felt like a natural. That's how the game was supposed to be played. The way the ball was moving, the reads that Patty was doing, that everybody was playing together, and it was just it seemed natural click, clicking on all ends. And don't get me started on the referees because 2019 was also 2019 was a, a referee year for us of when our coach went berserk also against France. That's right. When, when too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that was the crowd was going at the referees too. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was it was a tough one. It was a tough one to deal to deal with. Again, another summer that ended with frustration for us. But um, that's that's professional. I mean, national team is not considered professional sports, but it is in terms of passion and 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 commitment. It's professional. So um, yeah, no doubt. But I, sure. I I I uh, I don't want to take up much of your time. I have one more question on retirement, and I'm going to have like a, a a final eight because the final okay. eight because. In in your youth competitions, uh, a sixth place was not enough for victorious uh, for Victoria to put you in the top eight of the nationals. So I I, I could I put a top eight for you together okay. uh, to finish off. Um, mm. So re- retirement, I, I usually I ask players or ex players in terms of identity shift. You know where there's like a change in terms when you were playing and not playing. But to me, with you, it feels like and I had to write it down that I wanted to ask you that. But I'm feeling like it's it you were you knew who you were and you know who you are on and off the court there was no kind of like wish wishy-washy uh, uh fear of who am, am i going to be afterwards uh but when you were approaching retirement and we go back to mentorship were there some people or was was there something you were considering like because i'm sure you were physically drained mentally drained that's how it is towards the end of a career that goes into decision making but i was wondering and i think that's the key question was there some research some mentorship advice that you seeked in order to how to approach it or was it some just natural instincts um no nah, look i mean i heard a lot of stories about how much athletes every every athlete's going to struggle you know there's not one that's not going to struggle. That's why a lot of a lot of guys try to do something straight away, and it's usually the wrong thing. They just try to go and do another job, and then they don't end up liking it. I didn't want to jump into something just because. Like for instance, I got offered to be the assistant coach on the on the national team, the Boomers, right? 
And um, I only just retired three or four months ago, and I was like, I don't want to jump into that just because. I want to do it when I want to do it. But to be honest with you, I, I retired at probably, the, you know, outside of basketball, I retired at the worst possible time with what's going on in the world. So yeah. most of the things that I wanted to do, um, one was setting up a proper podcast studio and really ramping this thing up. I, I couldn't do um, because I don't, I don't know if you follow Australia much, but it's a shit show over here still. We're one of the last countries left that's locking down like crazy and all these restrictions. We can't even travel to different cities in our own damn country. The borders are locked. So it's, um, it's thrown a lot of problems my way well not just my way everyone's struggling but where I, I couldn't phase into what i wanted to do um yeah so that was a bit of an adjustment but you know you just you, no athletes ready for it you know we're, we're so onto the next thing road trip olympics nba finals blah, blah blah off season workouts physio everything's always and that switch gets turned off it's like okay what am i doing now like you can only drink beers on the beach for a couple of weeks till you're like i need to do something right so that was probably the biggest struggle and then just moving back home full time with my wife and kids and not not ever being home for more than a few hours at a time to now being home 24 hours um you know obviously probably was tough for my wife at the start was probably just you know so used to having that competitive edge probably being nitpicky with things with my kids and my wife and then actually realizing it and being like hang on a second you know this is more me than them so um it's it's a hard adjustment and I, I, there's not one athlete in the world that doesn't go through it it's a matter of how you handle it i know a lot of people have really handled it poorly um and you can understand how if you don't have the right transition set up the right family structure um it can be a real struggle and, you know, you try to implore athletes to have a passion outside of basketball. Uh, for me, that's probably poker most likely. Um, I love playing poker, which once again, the pandemic hasn't helped because live games are in the toilet pretty much because you can't you can't play because of the virus. Um, so playing a lot online and then the podcast, I just love storytelling. I love talking to, much like yourself, I love talking to people, not just basketball, I love talking everything, uh, meeting different people, different walks of life. Um, whether they, they work in politics or sports or acting or you know even just everyday business people that have built empires. I love just hearing those stories about how, how they've gone about it and sharing those stories. So that's kind of where I transitioned. But yeah, I mean, there were, there were some struggle days for sure, like um, all the money in the world and not having to worry about anything. You still have your struggles that you still need to figure out along the way. I think finding purpose is is the that that next thing you know like you said like finding figuring out like where you because you had purpose as a player you had purpose on the court you knew who you were you know what you had to do day in day out this regime regimen like the structure that goes in of being a pro athlete and you said like it was it was some some uh, push like with which you said with your wife there were some things that you had to adjust right after you retired yeah. and I just one story popped into my mind before we go into the final eight was this toothpaste story I have with my girlfriend that I, I uh, like it just I, I I kick myself and she's probably not gonna listen to it anyway but she's in the right like she's completely right of what she told because I I like to have the toothpaste upside uh, like down with the with the open with the lid down so that it just comes out uh, easier and she has brushing her teeth and she put it uh, upwards and And, you know, I could point it out. I could not point it out. But, hey, it's supposed to be this way, you know. And she got – she was like – she snuffed at me. It was like, oh, gosh. Like, I can't help it. I can't look the other way. You know, that's how – that's how, to me, I was doing things a certain way. And that's how I felt like it's supposed to be this way and not that way. But at some point in life, you just have to let go in terms of, like, 
this detail does not ma- does not make a difference. It does not change. Yeah, it does not move the needle for you to squeeze out the paste. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. I totally agree. I mean, that's that's kind of the transition I had. It was just like, as an athlete, you have, like I said, you have um, training. It's about me. I come home, pregame meal, my meal that I want to have pregame. Then it's my coffee. Then it's my nap. And then it's um, driving in the car, leaving at this time. So everything revolved around me, 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 me. So then you know, you retire and you're still kind of in that mentality a little bit. You have to kind of, you, you definitely have to adjust, but that's that's part of, that's the pro and con of being an athlete. You have to have that attitude, um, otherwise you're not going to succeed. You have to put yourself before family, friends, wives, even kids at times to make sure that you're bettering yourself, getting your recovery in, all that treatment, the food, routine. But then, you know, once you're done playing, you got to kind of adjust to the, to the real world, I guess. It's, it's, um, it's a mental adjustment, mostly, mostly sure. you know, just like it's coming from military basically into a real life. And that's that's yeah. how you, you have to look at it. Um, so I'll, I'll go through the, top, the, the final eight and you, you, you keep the answers as short as you want or as, as whatever you want to elaborate on. I'm not going to dig in. I just want to want you to come in and, and shot fire. Um, do you feel like you maximize your career? Yes and no. Um, I, I think... I think just around the injury stuff, it really. Um, I think I could have been a much better player without that. But I don't like. I don't, I don't want to use it as an excuse. But I think. Um, I think I could have got more out of myself. But you always. I think any athlete in the world would say that. In my opinion, um, that I could have done like for me. I could have done one more year and try to get to that. Two thousand twenty-one um, bronze medal with the team. That would have been great. But you always think you can do more. So. Um, but I will say I'm, I'm the most proud of being told twice that I probably wouldn't play basketball again and continuing on with my career for another four or five years beyond that. Biggest re- regret you feel you'd like to have uh, back? Biggest regret was probably going for that dunk with Amari Stoudemire behind me. <laughs> <laughs> I probably should have just kicked the fucking ball in the stands and just got the turnover and went back on defense. Um, if I had that all over again, that's exactly what I would have done. Um, one thing you reverse your you reverse your opinion while you were playing that you thought that was uh, one way, and then while you were playing, you felt like okay, this I reversed it. That's a different different way. One belief that you had that you changed your mind on, basically. One belief that I had, I changed my mind on. Oh man, um, I mean, just just how I guess athletic guys were. You don't. I wouldn't say I changed my opinion on it, but once you're on the court, seeing it in, on video and films, one thing, but then in real time, you know, guys like LeBron and that, the, the way they move um, athletically really even notched it up. So I wouldn't say it changed my opinion, but it even it even was like, holy shit, like these guys are, are crazy athletes and just being on the court with them was, was special. Biggest advice to a younger self? Um, biggest advice to a younger self would be enjoy it more. Um, I, I definitely didn't enjoy it as much as I should have. Um, and that's that's a part, that's the curse of the athlete. It's always the next thing, the next thing, the next Need my sleep, need my meal, need this, need that. Probably should have at times just had a few blowouts and just really taken it in and enjoyed it and smiled a bit more. Um, but it's hard because you're so competitive and if you let that guard down, that next night someone's going to kick your ass, you know, so you have to always kind of prepare. But I wish I would have just enjoyed it a little bit more. One thing you absolutely had to do before the game and the second one, one thing you absolutely had to do after the game to decompress? Uh, before the game, 
would be um, obviously eating in that, but would be the espresso on the way to the game. Um, coffee had to have some sort of coffee on. Now that was hard in some cities. You go to Oklahoma, yeah, you go to Oklahoma City, and you're trying to find coffee, and you're like, Oof. yeah, it's it's not looking too good. But yeah, traditional Euro style espresso or small little um, macchiato. Um, and then after the game, for me, um, it was a shitload of ice. <laughs> so just making sure ice the knees. I had a bad ankle, so ice my ankle. And then, um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, it just took after that to decompress properly. Like you'd never fall asleep before two or three in the morning after a game because you're just so hyped up and the noise and the crowd and all that. So just trying to get back to your zen was the hardest thing. When did you know you were not working hard enough? When did I know I was not working hard enough? Um, I mean, look, there were phases. Uh, the, the problem was with, with probably the middle of my career, there were times where I thought I needed to do more, but I knew mentally I needed to do more, but my body was starting to break down and I was like, Ugh, if I do more, you know, it could be detrimental yeah. to my actual body. So it was always that push-pull war with me towards the end of my career, the last five or six years of I know I need to do more, but I also know that I need to try to get as much longevity out of my body. So it was kind of a mix, but it always played on me mentally. So probably mid mid to mid to late career, I think I probably could have done a little bit more, but it was, it was, it was a tough situation I was in. And the last one, The first thing, the the your favorite one story that comes to mind when you hear Rick Majerus. I mean, everybody has their Rick Majerus story, but one story, maybe unheard of, maybe something that that I mean, every story is probably funny that you can relate to, but except the ones that when you're cursing at everybody, but um, something something that come, pops to mind right away. Oh, there's there's, there's so many, and, and anyone that's played for Rick Majerus or coached under him or even a team manager, whenever we catch up, it, it ends up going towards Rick Majerus stories like every single time with the accent and everything the two that come to mind both were on court he was big on um, on on making the right play offensively when teams played a zone he hated when teams played zone so it was a pet peeve of his that use ball fakes be fundamentally sound make proper passes and, and then I guess one of our walk-ons you know um, turned it over whatever and So he's cussing someone out and he's like, give me the ball. And, you know, he's 400 odd pounds, gets the ball and he's playing point guard and he like throws a throws a behind the back pass. And um, I just remember it bounces like three times <laughs> and one of the walk-ons steals it and he just loses his shit. He's like, oh, no, you want to play defense on my pass? Like this, you know, just like, but that was that was hilarious to us because he was like 400 pounds. Like he's trying to. <laughs> like he's a point guard. This is how you make a pass. Look at this. Oh, behind the back. And and like we all knew, if you ever threw a behind the back pass, he would cuss you out to the stars and make you run all practice. Um, that was one. And, and the other one was we were in, um, I think we were in Colorado and um, it was a CSU Colorado Springs. And he was, you know, he was big on defensive stance and closeouts and all that kind of stuff. And he just got pissed at one session because technique was wrong on the closeout. So he goes, to, he goes to give an example of the closeout, and so he, he like basically runs, stutter steps, blows out his knee, <laughs> does like a a forward flip, and just rolls in a ball. And like we had, we had like three recruits from Compton, like um, African American guys, awesome, like just like these dudes are laughing, like 
hysterically, like basically to his face, and he's like rolling on the floor, like, oh, give me some ice cream. They're just like dying, laughing at the dude. Um, and they made it, they made it fun. And these are the same guys that there was, they, they, they were in the same recruiting class. They were really close. And whenever we'd, um, whenever we'd huddle up, one of them would stand behind Rick Majerus. And, um, you know, Majerus was always, it was always, doom and gloom with talks end of huddles a bit of sense of humor but like if you caught you fucking around not looking at him he'd lose it one of them would be behind him blowing on, on his hair and he's balding so <laughs> he, portions of his hair would be like standing up like this and we're in the front of him we're all trying not to laugh and he's looking at us like what the fuck are you guys laughing at what the fuck are, you know what's so funny this is a serious game tomorrow whatever, whatever. every 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 day one of these three guys from California, from Compton, was like doing something to mess with him. But yeah, Rick Majerus just has. I mean, I've got a few. I mean, he came to Australia, almost got arrested because he he tried to bring in food through customs. He had like fifteen, <laughs> ten or fifteen cans of peanuts in his bag, and they're like, "You can't bring food in." Didn't mark it on his form. Oh, my secretary packed the bag. I don't know, and they almost arrested him. Just, just never ending with Rick Majerus. But look, I mean, he wasn't. Off the court, he wasn't a bad person. He had a good heart, but just on the court, a switch went in him where the, all the humanity just left his soul on a basketball court, um, and that was gone. But on the flip side, taught me a lot about basketball, probably the greatest basketball mind I've been around. So, you know, I guess he still has his poor prints on my career. Yeah, both. I appreciate it. If anybody wants to hear more Rick Majerus stories um, with your team manager at the time, I believe, uh, there was a lot of good exchanges about yeah. about a whole Can bunch of Rick Majerus stories. Yeah. And <laughs> so listen to, to both. When, if you're also on LinkedIn also, as uh, you, you said, right, with the um, Rogue Bokes podcast, there's, it's all over the uh, internet, all social media. Yeah, everywhere, man. It's um, at Rogue Bogues. We do a bunch of different series. So there's a weekly basketball. There's a My Journey. I do some current events stuff. Um, uh, actually just had um, – well, I can tell you because it's going to be live tomorrow. We, had, we just had Brian Gorgian on the pod for an in-conversation for two and a half hours of just telling stories, and it was awesome. So that's going to drop tomorrow. Wow. Um, and, yeah, we just – there's a bunch of different stuff. At Rogue Bogues, it's everywhere. Instagram, at Rogue Bogues, Twitter, uh, YouTube, and um, we're, on all, we're on all podcast platforms basically, including YouTube. Um, no video like you yet. We're not that professional yet. So when I get my studio, <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get a little video set up. But right now, syncing everything is hard enough here in Australia when you can't even leave your house half the time. But, um, yeah, we'll get there one day. Yeah, you'll you'll see the Lithuanian subscribers subscribe subscribership going up, all the views from Lithuania, the percentage is growing up. So, um, I I went over the hard cap, so I have to pay the tax. So the next beers, round of beers and, and drinks are on me. <laughs> That's well, you didn't be mention the, the one thing I, you didn't mention was the two thousand three uh, World Junior Championships when, uh, whew, you guys, Lithuania was the shit. They they were they were army like all the same haircuts, all nicely yeah, dressed in yeah, the yeah. green polos. They were they were mean mugging, basically laughing at us like look at these kangaroos. Beat us up in the preliminary rounds. Linus Kleiser, I believe, was the guy then, really good player. And then we got you guys in the gold medal game and beat you beat you guys by forty. <laughs> you should have mentioned you had you to bring that up, that. huh? You you, yeah, you had, had to, to bring that back up. You guys were good, man. You guys were like army like, but yeah, we these Australians with bleached hair and stupid haircuts. Your coaches were fuming, man. They were so fucking angry after that game, but it was uh it was good. <laughs> 
Uh, I remember you were talking about it on a podcast as well, and it was the the semifinal that stuck out to me the most when you were saying like how the the Greek the Greeks were were putting uh, oh, man. was <laughs> water. <laughs> Water, yeah, water shack. on the on baby the floor. Shack, shortenitis. So far, so far. As soon as Lithuania went on like a five zero run, one of the guys on the bench would get like a massive bottle of water, just throw it on the court. The refs would have to stop <laughs> the game, wipe it all. It happened like three times, man. And we're, we're sitting there watching, like, what the hell is going on here? And you, they still lost though, so that was a good thing. But yeah, it was that's that's Europe for you, man. Like, there's some crazy shit that goes on, as I'm sure you got millions of stories too. Yeah, it was. I mean, through my travels of our, with the, as I'm scouting, I had a lot of stories. To that. I mean, like just one one story when I was in at, at Panathinaikos when you were you know, talking about Greece, I went to Panathinaikos game early on in my in my uh, scouting trips for the Celtics, and I got a ticket. I had the seat, and you know I'm going on like it's like 30 minutes before the game, and I'm coming on, and it's a huge line to go to go to my seat uh, on on the uh, top of the bleachers you know so I, I can't see the arena yet i can't see the floor yet but i'm in the arena and i'm i'm, I'm starting to walk and i was like oh I'm, i just got to stay in line right i'm gonna wait here i'm gonna stay in line and and wait till i get there it was a playoff game Panathinaikos Maccabi, and i'm like i'm waiting as a proper guy who grew up in germany would do um follow the rules and I'm waiting 10 minutes, nothing happens. And I'm realizing these guys are going to stand there on the, on the staircase forever. So I'm just like, I'm finding my way through the, through the fans, through the fans <laughs> to get to my row. And like, believe it or not, my seat was free. <laughs> nobody was standing on it. Nobody was sitting on it. I just got there, sat there. I was like, Oh man, this is going to be enjoyable. So, I mean, they, they, they have like, I think, um, sixteen thousand capacity, but they find ways to to open open up yeah. the floodgates, and it's just <laughs> it's it's mayhem. So it's fun. It's a fun. It's a fun environment. I wouldn't I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's everybody 100%. who's a basketball fanatic should experience that. Whether it's Panathinaikos, Maccabi, Olympiakos, Jagiris. I mean, there's so many so many fun fans to 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 witness when you're when you're Euroleague games, and I'm glad it's coming back now because we're fortunately it's 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 starting to like hopefully it's going to continue to go that direction. And hopefully Australia will open up as as um, to the max as well soon. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. All right, folks. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, everybody, thanks for listening. And if you haven't if you haven't subscribed yet, this is the time now. So thanks a lot. Thanks, man.